You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Middle East Analysis. James Abbott in the chair. Now, you've just heard it. You've heard it hundreds of times, quite literally. Feyrouz there. Now, we've been using the Lebanese diva as our introductory, uh, wonderful, beautiful music, that lovely voice there. And actually, I was looking at Dr. Harry Hagopian's tweets this week, and he drew attention to the fact that on the 21st of November, Feyrouz hit that wonderful milestone of 88 years old. So, Harry, I feel I should at least start by drawing attention to that. Absolutely. And what a an unexpected intro James, I like it. That's one of the things I like about Middle East analysis is the unpredictable uh, points that you raise. Yes, Fairuz, the Lebanese diva, the icon of the Arab world, a beautiful voice, is 88 years old. And talking about that tweet, if you notice also the image, the picture I had with the tweet was the picture with her medal and the painting behind her, and that is reminiscent of the time when President Macron of France visited her in her house, that's her house there, and offered her uh, these things as as sort of exchange of gifts. So yes, Fairuz is uh, 88 years young. And a very definite part, unbeknownst to her, I'm sure, of Middle East analysis. Absolutely, absolutely, totally unbeknownst of her, but somebody... There isn't, I don't think there is any Arab man or woman across the whole MENA and Gulf region who wouldn't at least know one or two of her uh, songs. Libeirut is one of them. There's so many others. And And we played that out uh, rather poignantly after the Beirut blast. Absolutely, we did. Absolutely, we did. And then people say that our program is not the best analytical program. Well, we take even exception. provide distractions as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, isn't it nice to celebrate Feyrouz and, and her birthday and her wonderful contribution? Of course it is. And that reminds me, James, you know, I'm, uh, I, whenever I'm in the country on Sunday mornings, I follow the Sunday program on BBC One. And I've always held Laura Kunzberg in very high regard. Uh, yes. And one of the things she said when she took over in September is that she is going to make sure that there are some uplifting stories or snippets in her Sunday program and that it's not all doom and gloom, which is what news is all about. That's what is the merchandise. Yeah. And she has done it. So this is also a moment of joy to introduce Fairuz into Middle East analysis in your intro. And I can tell you, listeners, I had absolutely no idea where he was going. Look, you're forever ambushing me. Let me be honest. It's nice to get my own back once in a while. I'll do my afterthoughts. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I haven't seen those, listeners. Right. Well, quite a lot to talk about. I Mm -hmm. mean, I think... Much as we we tend to talk about very serious issues, quite cataclysmic ones, violence, turmoil, unrest, negativity, we do it all the time because those issues come to the fore. But we're going to start, Harry, because we how can we start with anything else when Saudi Arabia is beating Lionel Messi's Argentina? We are going to start with the World Cup in Qatar. Absolutely appropriate. And it is the talk of the town, as it were, and in the Arab world, particularly in Qatar, but not only in Qatar, across the whole Arab world, there is so much pumped up enthusiasm for the World Cup that it is almost at times the flip side of what is happening in our European shores, where we are constantly carping about this and that. We can't do this. We don't do that. This is not right, that is lacking, the other is wanting, whereas there they are so proud and so happy to be hosting for an Arab Muslim country. So you bring two components that have never been there with the World Cup, Arab and Muslim together in a tiny state, hosting it, a tiny state which fortunately has so much money that it can pull it off. And it's happening and it's it's remarkable. I mean, when I heard that Saudi Arabia 
had uh, defeated in that first match Argentina with Lionel Messi, and it was supposed to be his big uh, exit. I thought to myself, wow. And then I heard that the Tunisians had held the Danes 1-1. And I said, wow, ditto with the Moroccans who, as you know, because you are light years ahead of me, James. Listeners, you should know this. The man with football is the one sitting in front of me. Uh, Morocco is the dark horse. And everybody is saying, would it not be a blast, an absolute blast, if an Arab country wins the trophy this year in an Arab Muslim country? And of course, everybody is saying Morocco. But at the moment, the way everything has been going uh, on, one can never tell what's going to happen between now and the 18th of December. You know what? That that unpredictability is part of the charm, if you ask me. I but, agree. But I did see some incredible celebrations. Obviously, in this digital age, it doesn't take long for the various video clips and other bits and pieces to come out. And I saw a room full of, admittedly, men watching the Saudi Arabia-Argentina match. And they were two good goals, by the way. Mm. Two good goals. And when that winning goal went in, literally... They lifted the door off the room and they're just <laughs> throwing themselves around, going outside, coming back in, going outside. Yep. The joy was something to behold. It was. And it was real. It was genuine uh, joy. And it was the joy of something that was totally unexpected. Argentina went in there thinking they're going to do this. And lo and behold, no. It's a little bit, if you want, but they reacted differently because they don't have the same Middle Eastern or Arab temperament when Japan won against Germany. Yeah. And I mean, you should comment on that because you, as I say, you know better. But I thought to myself, what's happening? Those those big, big teams, I mean, uh, what's happening? But you know what? To be truthful, th those that keep an eye on, I mean, I'm not so much an expert in world football, actually, but Japan have always been quite a decent side, you know, mm. but better than you might think if you didn't know to be honest. And, and as you rightly said, Morocco. Morocco have always been pretty solid. Mm. You know, a lot of those North African countries, Egypt as well, yeah. have, have for quite a long time been, been pretty respectable, yeah. actually. So mm, not so surprised, although I tip Germany, as you know. We had a bit of uh, correspondence. <laughs> I tip Germany as my dark horses. It seems weird to, to tip a country like Germany with that World Cup. I pedigree. love it when you said in one of your responses, if Germany wins, Harry, and a lot of listeners know that I'm very Germanophile, you said that I'd wear my German uh, hat and be very proud of it. Mm, your Deutschland <laughs> hat with flag. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Are you enjoying it? You're not a massive football man, but you uh, is it solely because it's so emblematic and so good for the Arab world? Is this why you're fully taking part and interest? Or, no. or are you actually enjoying it? I'm enjoying it on three levels, uh, James. First, I'm not a big football person. No, I agree with you. I wouldn't sit and sort of go through all the matches every weekend in this country or see what's happening with Paris Saint-Germain, Newcastle United, Man City and why Bayern Man Munich. United, Bayern Munich. No, but this is too big to ignore. And it brings the whole world. And there has been so much, 12 years of pregnant expectation as to what's going to happen when it eventually unfolds in Qatar because uh, the FIFA choice of Qatar was when? It was 12 years ago. And in a sense, Qatar has been working very hard to try and uh, make this happen. So that's one reason. The second reason you're spot on, I am actually, I'm Armenian, I'm not an Arab, I'm Christian, I'm not Muslim, but I am proud because of my background, because of my interests, I'm proud that this World Cup is taking place in an Arab country and in a Muslim country. But there is also a third point there, and that is that the controversies on human rights that have taken place uh, during this whole period have basically soured a little bit the mood, have soured a little bit the taste of the enjoyment of this event when politics and the football have basically uh, intersected. And for me, that's very important because I have my own views about that. And I see this as a situation, clearly a situation where two different but parallel universes have actually 
not necessarily clashed, but come face to face, a standoff mm. of sorts. Yeah, uh, penalty points, as it were, with some very uncomfortable yeah. differences where the Europeans suddenly are saying, yes, but we have to have the armbands, we have to cover our mouths, we have to wear the hats, we have to be noisy. And then the people there are saying, you're being too noisy, too loud, too... This is not our culture. And... Uh, uh, the the ban of the bud uh, beer around Alcohol. the stadiums, but not in the fan zones, mm. not in the hotels. All this has happened. And you wonder, $20 billion spent on this event by Qatar. I mean, let's be a little bit more gracious, a little bit more grateful for what this event represents and not bring it down to only, oh, human rights. What about the LBGT? Uh, QI uh, community? What about the beer? What about uh, the workers? Do they have all their rights? All these things that constantly on and on and on have been uh, thrown at uh, Qatar, so much so that I'll, I'll share and I'll stop here. I'll share one tweet which I actually found because, as you know, I've spoken a bit about this, mm. both on my YouTube episodes as well as on uh, the Twitter sphere, which is full of these things. And the Twitter sphere is buzzing with Europe saying one thing and the Arab world saying something else in general. But one uh, tweet that caught my mind today was by a young Arab woman uh, in Germany. She lives in Germany. And she said, hold on. A few weeks ago, the Palestinians celebrated, celebrated is not the word, what's the word I'm looking for, commemorated Nakba Day, Catastrophe Day mm. in, uh, in their history. And some of them went out to commemorate this and express their sadness for the occasion wearing the Arab headgear, the kefiyeh. The German police came, descended upon them, took all the kefiyeh's uh, headgears off their heads. She said, hold on. So why are these same Germans and Europeans in general, some of the countries, commenting about what is happening in the Arab world when they're telling them you can't wear armbands, you can't wear those hats that the Welsh supporters wanted to wear, etc., etc.? Hypocrisy, hypocrisy, hypocrisy. Europe has this superior attitude almost evangelizing attitude that we know about human rights, we know about it all, you don't, we're going to tell you and you've got to do it our way. It's two parallel universes. On the one hand, you've got a sort of adherence to what we in the West consider our precious Eurocentric values. And on the other hand, you have the norms, the customs, the traditions and the culture of a an ethnicity, an Arab world, and a religion, Islam, generally, that is far, far different from the way we see it. So this is the third reason, and I elaborated a bit on the third reason why I'm following the FIFA World Cup, because of this third factor. I agree. I think, you know, technically, call both out. Call yeah. both out. If it's a human rights problem, it's a human rights problem. But call yeah. them both out. You know, reform is fine. And what people don't realize is how much Qatar and the Qatari authorities have bent backward in order to try and accommodate some of the concerns that Europeans have had in relation to these games taking place in uh, uh, in uh, in Qatar. But for crying out loud, having somebody who actually opened the envelope and took out the paper which said Qatar and he said, brilliant. And then a few days ago, he's saying Qatar is the wrong choice. I mean, excuse me, what is happening here? We have to be a little bit more understanding that the whole world doesn't see things the same way we do. It's exactly the same with Ukraine. You go to other parts of the world, Latin America, Africa, the Middle East, and you see that they disagree with this zeal with which the UK and some other countries are taking the Ukraine war and what Ukraine and Russia uh, war is all about. We have to be more accommodating. We're living in a global world. We're not living in a world where Europe defines and everybody follows. But, and I'll finish on this note, James, because this is a key moment point for me. What Qatar has also done is when they had the opening ceremony, and you said about all the fireworks and all the digital uh, pizzazz, 
What also happened is that the Emir of Qatar has been playing a second track diplomatic uh, course. If you notice, and I don't know how many of our listeners noticed, but in the opening ceremony, he managed to put the Turkish president and the Egyptian president, who had fallen out big time over years, because the Egyptian accused the uh, Turk of being a supporter of Islam and Muslim Brotherhood, and the uh, vice versa, put them together. And at the, what you know what? At the end, they were talking, and they haven't become friends, but the levels of tension have come down, and this is great. And I was talking to one person who is wily enough and clever enough and experienced enough in the Middle East to say this. She told me, Harry, did you notice that? I said, yes, this is World Cup diplomacy. And it reminded me, because I'm a fossil and I'm old enough to remember these things, it reminded me of the time when Richard Nixon and Mao Zedong, United States of America and China, were at odds. And who did ping-pong diplomacy? Dr. Henry Kissinger. And this is another kind of diplomacy, second-track diplomacy. So the World Cup is not only about kicking a ball. The World Cup is not only about, oh, is it going to be the Spanish who are going to get it? What's going to happen with Iran? Would the Americans be kicked out? Is it Wales or, or England? I support Wales, by the way, because they're the underdog, and I always go for the underdog. That's the bane of my life. I'm never as successful as other people because I always support lost causes. Well, you know what? We need to now segue into our next topic, which is Iran. Which is Iran. And it's those rather unsavoury um, protests, well, not yeah. the, pro the crackdown, yeah. the, the violent crackdown on those protests. But you did, and this is how I'm going to segue into it, you did mention your interest in the Arab countries yeah. and how they're performing. Wales nil, Iran two. So it's wow. another, I mean, you know, should again, your, your point of before, should we be surprised? Well, Iran were in the top 20, actually, yes. to be honest. I know they got a thumping from England. Yeah. And to be fair, I think that says more about England. I think a bit of credit for England there because Iran aren't a bad footballing side. Yeah. And perhaps they've proved it there. The only caveat is that the Welsh goalkeeper was sent off. Can you actually send the goalkeeper off? Yeah, if he does, if he if he fouls or does something worthy of uh, being dismissed. So yeah. you send the goalkeeper off, and then you keep the net open for people to come and kick the ball into the net. Oh, we really have to start from ground zero. <laughs> <laughs> you are permitted substitutes, and one of which usually is a goalkeeper. Okey doke. But but you're down to ten. You don't. You've got okay. less less yeah. men. Their two goals came in the ninety eighth and the hundred and first minute after the sending off. Ouch. Ouch. So there you go. Sorry, listeners, we obviously haven't been watching as we've proven by our comments there. But yes, that's because we've Iran been working. Won. We've been working. Well, we've been bringing this to you. Forgive yeah, us. But exactly. But you know what? I mean, after the thrashing that Iran got and the fact that the Iran team did not sing the national anthem. And yes. again, so many interpretations we'll were made about it. I have my own interpretation on that. But so many interpretations on that. Fair enough. Now that they won against Wales, well, I'm sorry for Wales because I was supporting Wales. As you I just, just declared said. your support for Wales. Yeah, exactly. And I still do. But uh, uh, bravo on Iran that it actually managed. And you're absolutely right. From the little that I know about football, I know that they are held in high regard in football terms. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest, injury time goals. But nonetheless, it's, it's another eyebrow raising win for an Arab country. And it also shows how unpredictable it is going to be, perhaps. I don't know, maybe maybe I'll eat my own words because I don't understand half of what I'm saying myself. But how unpredictable it's going to be come the 18th of December and they hold the trophy. You remember last month when we talked about this, I said, I've decided not to be part of that bazaar and I'm not going there. And you and I actually discussed whether you would like to go there and you decided yes. at the last minute, no, not really. So I'm just My bank balance decided at the last your minute. Your bank balance no, decided. Really. In my case, it wasn't my bank balance. It was other considerations, namely health. Mm. So in a sense, I'm just wondering what's going to happen on the 18th and all the buzz, all the excitement. You know, people are talking. You go to the Corniche. You go to all these stadiums, Al-Bayt, Lusail, uh, all of them. 
you go to places buzzing with tourists, uh, Sukhwakif, the Pearl, and all those other places that most people know about. And you wonder, I mean, can you imagine even some of the universities which are affiliated to American universities uh, and are found in part of uh, the capital Doha called Education City, they actually held seminars before the World Cup in Qatar about the impact of football on the Arab world. So the Arab world is not ignorant like me of football. They know what they're talking about. And this is why the excitement there is at the moment, the pride there is at the moment, merits to be appreciated and, and uh, well, used uh, positively. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and let's be honest, what, what it is proving, I, d- I don't think we'll be seeing Saudi Arabia lifting the World Cup. I don't think so. <laughs> to be quite honest. They might get a Rolex or two or a Rolls Royce or two out of that <laughs> particular performance against uh, Argentina. But they're not rolling over for anyone, to mm. be fair, the Arab nations. They're, and look how competitive they're being. All credit to them. And I'm sure it will make for an interesting World Cup. And you know what? You're going to correct me here because, again, of your superior knowledge. But I was kind of thinking that Qatar might not be defeated in the first match against Ecuador, the one that basically opened this whole Mm. shindig. And they were 2-0, 2-0. Were you surprised by that? Or did you think that... Because Ecuador is not the number one, two or three in Latin America. Were you expecting this outcome or were you surprised as a, a spectator? I wasn't surprised. I would have thought that a 4-5-6 South American country would would quite comfortably do for Qatar, with no disrespect to them at yeah. all. And actually, Ecuador, you know, they're, they're, they're always very good when they play their home matches. There's a certain altitude involved. It's mm. hard for, for other visiting nations to come and play there. But to do that in Qatar, yeah, I mean, credit to the Ecuadorian team, to be quite frank. Yeah. And let's see how Qatar respond. Yeah. Absolutely. And you know what? I'll tell you something which will make you smile, James, and which will make a lot of my listeners smile as well, because they would say, oh, Harry is paranoid again. In a very bizarre, otherworldly reaction that I had for the defeat of Qatar in the first match, I thought to myself, you know, with all those accusations leveled against Qatar about human rights, communities, beer, uh, greenwashing, and all that, if they'd won, some people who bode ill for that neck of the woods would have said, oh, well, with all their money, they probably bribed the other uh, side to win. The rumours were floating around before the match. Someone (laughs) someone said to me, if Qatar win 1-0 and it's a second half goal, I'll know it's rigged. Because apparently one of the rumours, as, as obviously they were proven to be, one of the rumours that was going around is that that would be the engineered result. Well, I mean, as far as I know, and again, I, I sort of hand it to you to correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I know, in any World Cup in the past, nobody has actually, no host country has won the first, has lost the first match. And this was the first time. But there is some satisfaction in that because it nipped in the bud all those conspiracy uh, theories. And for those people who are saying human rights, this human rights, that, I remind them, did we say anything when China hosted in, was it 2008? Did we say anything when Russia hosted in 2018? What was happening to the the Olympics as well, of course, in Beijing? Exactly. Mm -hmm. All that. Why suddenly? Then you ask me, am I paranoid? I don't know. I keep telling you, Two parallel universes that are colliding. I could make a statement now, but I'll be getting myself into rather hot water. But um, let's just say if you compare the attention the conflict in Yemen gets and the human rights disaster in Yemen versus, quite rightly, Ukraine, the eyes of the world should be on that situation, but not necessarily to the detriment of others. And I think you can draw your own conclusions as to which realities are more interesting to the wider world than others. James, as an Englishman with Cypriot genes, I wanted you to say this rather than me say it. Thank you very much for pointing it out to our listeners. And I would basically say that, and we're going to come to that because we discussed what are the two or three themes and we're already running a bit too, too long with this one. The head of mission of the Palestinian head of mission was interviewed on Channel 4 by Christian. Uh, is it Christian Guru Murphy? Murphy. Uh, he interviewed him after the uh, attacks on the 
at the two bus stops in Jerusalem two or three days ago. Mm. And he said, Europe is so exercised by Ukraine, nothing by people outside the European sphere. And that is something that a lot of people have been telling me that, look, there are double standards here. And I, like you, will stop here. Yeah, there are also shades of brown, but I too will stop here. (laughs) Um, So, Harry, we do segue into the um, crackdown on the Iranian protests. You and I spoke about uh, Masa Amini, hopefully I've pronounced that correctly, the 22-year-old that was sadly killed in custody on the 16th of September. We know about the protests that have followed. Uh, We now know more about the crackdown. And I think where we're at at this moment in time, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the UN Human Rights Council, for what it's worth, is going to investigate the crackdown on those protests. What is it worth, Harry? I'll tell you what it's worth, James, and thank you for pointing this out. You're absolutely right. And I would just ask a moot question for our listeners because I cannot yet provide the answer. It's too early to provide the answer. The protests that we have seen in Iran, which began with protests led by women, but which basically became cross-sectional, and that's what's different about these protests from all the other protests, 2007, etc., etc., it's not one cross-section of society, it's a lot of cross-sections, schools, women, even men, even some of the forces coming and supporting these uh, this uh, the protest. The question I would put, and I haven't got an answer yet to it, and I'm thinking about it, what we are witnessing, is it simply a movement or is it a revolution? Because the outcome could well hinge upon whether this is a movement and movements can peak and then calm down, or is it a revolution which could go on and who knows where it might go. Well, except me challenging you on this then a little bit, because my first and really only question on this um, was to just pick your brain a bit. And you're kind of going there, actually. We spoke about the Green Revolution. Yeah. You remember we spoke about that on the yes, analysis. And my question was, OK, and, and you just used the word revolution, but will this actually lead to any change? That is the 60000 or $100,000 question or however... Uh, Add many more thousands. Exactly, with inflation at so many high percentage points. You're absolutely right. If it's a revolution rather than a movement, will it go? how far would it go and mm. what would it change? Would it be able to get the mullahs out of the system and bring a different system to Iran, which is what a lot of these people want actresses, people. And remember, there are about three to four hundred deaths. This is the official count I know. The numbers may vary. 14,000 or so arrests already by the besiege, by the authorities against the protesters. So uh, it's not it's not as simple as just a couple of days of uh, rough uh, moments. So would it go there? I'm not sure. To be honest with you, if you ask my own personal gut feeling, I'll tell you that the mulocracy in Iran is so well rooted that something like this alone on a stretch of a few weeks is not going to get rid of the system. What it's going to do is 2007, etc., etc. It's going to nudge the system a little bit more. And the more you nudge it, the weaker it becomes so that next time it might actually go a few miles further. And coming back to the point you raised about the UN Human Rights Council, which was estab- which established an investigative committee in Geneva. Now, the, the interesting thing is people expected Iran to be able to kibosh or defeat this resolution. Mm. They failed. And the number of countries that voted for the setting up of the investigative committee were quite, quite uh, remarkable. But people said, and people said to me as well, "Pa, big deal. We've seen this time and again across many, many countries in the world, not only in Iran. This is going to be another one of those uh, wasted moments where, yes, we come up with a structure. We look as if we're doing something and that would be it. No, it's like Syria. In Syria also, you have investigative committees. What can they do? Bugger all nothing. Why? Because those UN uh, committees for Syria or those for Iran 
will not be allowed into the country to do their examinations, their investigations, but they're very good at doing it from the outside. And what they will do, they will keep, they will save in the digital archives so that time moves on, the world moves on. There will come a time when it will be a time of reckoning. And at that moment, if the world community, if the UNHCR, if others can say, oh yes, here are the documents, here are the files, here are the archives, the result would be different than saying, oh, sorry, we, 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 we followed it up, but we didn't know what to do because we couldn't go into the country. I'm not uh, negative about this event. I don't think it will do anything in the short term. It might do something in the long term. Maybe chipping away. But as you say, it's very hard to get stats, which is why I was interested in, it's not about statistics, but I was interested in getting a, <laughs> a measure of the scale of the thing, if you like. But all you get officially are obviously the deaths of security personnel. And I think we, we read a figure 50, wasn't it? Around about 50 security personnel. Whether that's the Revolutionary Guard or policemen, or, or I'm not sure. But that figure came out. So I was thinking, well, you know, if we extrapolate that, if 50 security officials have been killed, how many protesters, how yeah. many civilians? It's hard, <laughs> isn't it? You, you know, as you say, those those figures aren't aren't coming out and they're not not easy to get. But maybe maybe bit by bit things will change. I don't think you need to throw away your culture, your you know, your beliefs, the observance of those things. It's more, you know, if you've got a hair sticking out of a hijab or something, really, is that is that the thing to come down so hard on? That's that what I not, would say. No, no, that is not the thing. I would agree with you entirely, James. I think I think all this has nothing to do with religion, has everything to do with politics, with power and with control. That's all it is. And the way that you can control a society is if you tell them how to behave and how to think. Mm. And that's dangerous. And that's one thing we in the West, at least, despite the fact that we don't have a democracy in the uh, in the blossoming uh, academic sense of what a democracy is. Because remember, what is democracy? It's the worst. It's the best of a bad uh, deal. Uh, but at least you and I can sit and talk and somebody is not going to come and knock in the middle of the night and tell me, you said this on Twitter, you did that at a public place, you were seen at Hyde Park on a box uh, talking about the government and saying that the prime minister and his cabinet know nothing about what the country is suffering from today. They won't do that. In other parts of the world, if you so much as breathe out of place, you're in trouble. Can you imagine if you had this podcast in certain parts of the world? No, we can't. But we that is here. why this podcast is popular, because they enjoy listening to it, knowing full well that they cannot themselves produce it the way you do. You know, every month I'm there going, if this was in another part of the world, we'd probably be hoovered up, actually. <laughs> Absolutely true. And this is one of the reasons why I so love uh, Europe and the West, is because I'm not uh, blind to its ills, its foibles, its sins. I know that history is replete with things we did and still do to maintain our so-called superiority in terms of politics and more than politics. But at the same time, there are still a few things we still have. My only hope, my only prayer, my only wish is that we also are not lapsing in the West slowly into a situation where if we were to come back 200, 300 years from now in a different reincarnation and sit in front of these two mics in this lovely studio and talk, that we also would be afraid to say these things today that we are saying now. What a strong way of ending. Good point. Now, that leaves us moving on to Israel-Palestine. Oh, Israel-Palestine. <laughs> I mean... We had the twin blast, though, didn't we? Yeah, in, in we Jerusalem. did. And we keep talking about uh, that. I and mean, a couple of points about uh, Israel-Palestine. First, Benjamin Netanyahu is definitely going to be the prime minister. We still have Yair Lapid as the caretaker prime minister. But that's only until such time as he manages to form a government that it receives the approval of the Israeli Knesset or parliament. And then the comeback king is king again, and nobody is going to worry about all the indictments and all the court proceedings and all the facts that he is the biggest manipulator of Israeli politics for his own interests. Has he got past, on a global scale in terms of comebacks, has he got past Boris Johnson, Silvio Berlusconi? He's, he's the real survivor he of the piece, isn't he? He is the real survivor. He? He's outdone Boris Johnson by... A mile. He's outdone Silvio Berlusconi. He's done, he definitely has done Trump. 
uh, and I hope that will remain so. Uh, I'm revealing a little bit of my politics, dear listeners. But uh, when it comes to Netanyahu, yes, he's going to come back. But how is he going to come back? At the expense of democracy, at the expense of... The fact remains, James, and this is what our listeners should remember, that he's coming, he's going to bed politically with the religious with a religious political power, the likes of Itamar Ben-Gvir and uh, others. And what he's doing is giving these people ministerial portfolios so that they would support his cabinet, his government, and he remains in power. And this is dangerous because what is happening is that Israel, which has 20 plus percent of Arab Palestinians who are Israeli citizens are going down the drain. They're being sacrificed. They're being scapegoated in this new revival of Benjamin Netanyahu. The Palestinians outside the Green Line were not citizens, but who are uh, part of the occupied Palestinian territories are going to suffer even more and more. The They're going to be stifled more and more. More tensions are going to happen and people like the depopulation of Masafer Yatta we talked about in a previous episode in the hills near Hebron in south of the West Bank of Palestine, they're going to suffer. The people in Sheikh Jarrah, the residents are going to be evacuated, demolitions will concern, even now targeting of individuals, what we call extrajudicial killings, might come back with the likes of uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir. So it's going to be absolutely awful. And then in the middle of this, when I'm so aware of how unjust the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is leveraged against Palestinians and for Israel, how in the West we do soft eyes to Israel and when it comes to the Palestinians, most of the political hierarchies are not interested. The injustice of it all, when that hap- when I know that, and then suddenly uh, there are two Israeli uh, uh, Jews who are killed at two bus stops, I actually find myself in a very difficult situation because I abhor violence, I abhor these killings, I abhor terrorism. But on the other, so everybody looks at me exactly like I said a little while ago when the head of mission of the Palestinians here was, he said, look, two Israelis die. The whole media, Channel 4, BBC, CNN, everybody wants to interview me and the Israeli ambassador as to, hey, what's happening? Hundreds of Palestinians have died. Did Channel 4, CNN, ABC, BBC, Sky, did any of them say, Mr. Head of Mission, Mr. Ambassador, will you come and explain yourself? No. Why? Because it's lopsided. And what I worry about is I reprove, I disagree, I condemn those killings. But at the same time, I know what the Palestinians are suffering, how much the whole conflict is basically working against them. And I think to myself, if I don't say something, I'm going to be called somebody who supports violence or worse, somebody who's anti-Semite. If I do say something, it's like I'm suddenly getting all excited and all apologetic about two deaths, whereas all those Palestinians, this whole conflict that has meant the loss of land, the loss of property, the loss of human lives, the loss of Palestinian dignity uh, is shifted to one side. That is my own personal struggle. I struggle with this. And if you follow my Twitter, which I know you do, I said in one tweet only I did, and this is the truth. This is not me being giving myself uh, license. When I heard what had happened in Jerusalem, and I thought to myself, okay, I condemn these killings, but what about all the history that is replete with suffering of Palestinians on the hand of an occupying force going against international law? I cradled my head in my hands, there and then, sitting in front of my computer in my own nice flat, and I wept. I wept. I thought you were being symbolic. You actually did. I wept. I wasn't being symbolic. I wept not because of the two killings, not because of the 
killings and suffering and loss sustained by Palestinians over decades, I wept bitter tears because of my own frustration about the contradictions in me that here we are, the world is being exercised and I with them about those killings and yet nobody gives a toss when a Palestinian dies. And a Palestinian is as much a human being as an Israeli Jew is. And as a Christian believer, I think we are all uh, created in the image and likeness of God. I cannot say that I'm going to get all upset when a Palestinian, if that's what happened, uh, killed those t uh, people and injured others at the bus stops, whereas when it is all those people, Masafir Yatta, Sheikh Jarrah, settlements, outposts were crying out loud uh, that are being brought back, 65 of them are being brought back by Benjamin Netanyahu in order to please the religious uh, party so it comes into power with them. Those were the tears. And maybe because I'm getting old and my self-retention is weakening, maybe 20 years ago I wouldn't have cried. But a few days ago, the system just broke down. And I cried and said, what a, forgive the French, what a shitty world we live in. I had a follow-up question, but I think we should end on that note for that segment because, yeah, and certainly with this particular reality, it's how, it's how I feel. Final thoughts. Now, this is the wonderful moment of Middle East analysis. I don't know if you're going to cheer me up a bit or make me feel even worse. So we'll, we'll find out. But um, I know not what you're going to bring forth now. That is that is the only bit where I have pleasure uh, at the end of the MEA because all this is brilliant. You and I have had a wonderful run of so many years under different guises and with different hats. Totally. But the afterthoughts are my little perky moment where I go anti-establishment and I say whatever I want. <laughs> okay. I will don the tin hat and hope we don't get complaints. We're not going to get complaints. I just wanted to remind the world that a few days ago, Palestinians commemorated, remembered the 18th anniversary of the death of Yasser Arafat. Now, I happen to have had the privilege and at times very few times, but at times the pleasure of meeting him during my track to negotiation period, during the much maligned Oslo process, which now everybody poo-poos because everybody after a post-mortem is always wiser to the fact. Why do I bring this as an afterthought? Because although Arafat had so many foibles and so many issues, and he led Palestinians astray in so many ways. And you and I, maybe in December, we can do a more contemplative program where we can just do a, a chatter. We could do our souk that we always plan to do. That's the one. We could do our uh, souk or kaz and do just a, a chat. And I'll tell you a few stories of my 20 to 30 years of experience. Let's do that. But he actually put the Palestinian identity there. And nobody since then has been able to remove it. Not the United States, not the West, not the Arab countries, whether the normalizing and non-normalizing varieties. Nobody has been able to remove the Palestinian identity, the Palestinian reality. To my mind, is something that Arafat did because he brought a Palestinian movement, we were talking about movements versus revolutions in Iran, uh, James. He brought the Palestinians in from the cold and they found their way through much killing and many, many, many nasty black incidents. Black September in Jordan, the wars in Lebanon when they took over before Hezbollah and the uh, militias were there. They had problems. They were in Tunisia as well. They camped there. Eventually, they came uh, to Palestine itself. That reality is something Israel, with all its might, both nuclear and non-nuclear, with the incredible support that it gets from the United States, from the UK, and from Germany principally, it will not be able to expunge or delete the reality of Palestine. This is my first 
uh, afterthought. My second, and listeners don't despair, there are only three. The second afterthought is that it's the 20th birthday of the ecumenical accompaniment program for Palestine and Israel. Now, this is basically a program. In you movement. remember the graphic I used on our last podcast, 404 Solution Not Found. Yes, That you belonged did. to their, that was their, oh, did it? that was a bit of their graffiti. Okay. Well, the EAPPI was set up, created in 2002 by the World Council of Churches, what I call the mothership of ecumenism in Geneva, which, which hosts a lot of uh, Christian uh, churches and communities. It was created in 2002. It is coordinated by the World Council of Churches. And here in the UK, we also have an EAPPI, UK and Ireland chapter, which is run by the Quakers. And they celebrated their 20th anniversary. So I wanted to give a shout for them because when I was working with the Middle East Council of Churches in a previous life, many light years away, in Jerusalem, in Beirut, in Limassol, Cyprus, in Iraq, in Jordan, the EAPPI were part of it. And what do they do? They're monitors. Men and women go there to watch, monitor, accompany, as the name goes, people who are in need of support or succor. That's basically the EAPPI, and that's the second anniversary. And the third one I wanted to say, which is a tiny bit controversial because it's something that is in the public domain these days, Good luck to the nurses. Oh, yes. A strike on the 15th of December and a second one on the 20th of December. People are already saying, oh, yes, but what about our scan? What about our hip replacement operation? Hey, the banging pots and pans of the pandemic has been forgotten pretty fast. Exactly. Thank you, James. You remember the candles we lit and we thought... Clapping? These are angels. Uh, the prime minister and his wife, Boris Johnson at the time, used to stand in front of 10 Downing Street clapping. The leader of the opposition used to clap. Everybody said, yes, 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 we are 100% with the nurses and with the NHS. The fact that there are so many vacancies that nobody is taking up because the pay is so risible, because the hours are so maddening, because the people are simply not there and those who are there are utterly exhausted. Yeah. Listen, guys, I owe my life to the NHS. I would not be doing this interview with you, this MEA with you this month, or for the last 10 years for that matter, if it were not for the NHS. I was in a coma, I was pronounced dead, and then I was revived. And all this is due to the NHS and those plucky, hardworking men and women Everybody, from the people who take you around in the wheelchair to the consultants who basically wield the knife or tell you what's wrong with you. If we cannot take care of the NHS, then we have two options. Either we go the full hog and privatize, which is the, for me, it's, it's out of the question, or alternatively, we support those people. Telling a nurse, you're my Florence Nightingale, doesn't do a blind bit of difference. Show him or her that they are the Florences of Nightingale of today. So, you know what? I support the nurses and all those whinging people who sort of said, oh, but how am I going to uh, go to, from home to work if the buses aren't or trains aren't working? Oh, what am I going to do with my blood test? And they're doing so many exceptions for uh, accident and emergency, for cancer treatment, etc., etc. So bravo to the nurses. You saved my life. And uh, those in the know know about it. I have a dear friend of mine. People ask me, why am I so, so attached to this person and my friendship to her? She left, came to the country, sat with me through thick and thin to make sure that I don't die. People like that are not found every day. And the NHS is something we should be proud of rather than constantly try to chisel away until such time when we say the system simply cannot work. Let's go private like the Americans. And I'd like to see what happens then. A program is set up by a labor government 
if Labour comes back to, into power, I hope they will assume their responsibility. Flippinette, you're getting political on all levels now. Now, look, I don't doubt you for one second. I know you. We're, we're friends. I don't doubt you for one second. So I'm going to deliberately poke the bear and be controversial. Poke so, away. So with that in mind, very impassioned, absolutely take you at your word. If you fell that seriously sick again on a strike day and you were, you know, to effectively be close to death's door as a result of that action, so be it. So be it. And you know why so be it? Because I'm one person. I'm nobody. I'm insignificant in the larger scheme of things. And if I'm going to be so selfish as to say they shouldn't die because I might get so sick again that I might need them, no. And you know what? If I'm so sick again and I might need them, these hardworking people have kept A&E open. So I'm not going to go and find the doors of A&E shut somebody will still be there to say, let me try and do something for you. But they have the right to express their deep dissatisfaction with the mess they are in today and have been for a while, actually, clapping notwithstanding. Here, here. And there's a man of principle sitting opposite me who was able to confidently, without blinking, answer that question. Harry, thank you so much. I know you're travelling next month. Um, let's try and squeeze in a December Middle East analysis. I'm not going to give it away, listeners, but it could be very significant. It is going to be very significant, I think, James, on many, many fronts. And I would love to have a nice uh, December where we let our hair down. Have you noticed I haven't had a haircut for a long time? I was talking to an associate of mine a few days ago, and he looked at me. He said, Harry, you usually don't have any hair on your head. What's happened with you? I said, times are hard. <laughs> I was going to say, you're not quite Rapunzel, to be quite fair. But at the same time, yes, it is, it is definitely growing a little bit shaggy at the back there. It's Growing more than a bit shaggy, yes. I look a little bit uh, more unattractive than usual. Oh, don't talk yourself down. <laughs> right, Harry, next month, do take care of yourself. Listen, talking ourselves down is, mm. is, a, is a British trait that I've learned so well. It's obviously contagious, isn't it? <laughs> On that note, Harry, have a good month. Perhaps we'll catch up and talk about your travels, but it will be a monumental Middle East analysis for December. Listeners, thank you so much. And Harry, thank you pleasure.